Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, Steve, how was your week? Uh, doing fine. I am uh, a little bit a little bit anxious. We're uh, actually getting our house painted, uh, the interior of the house, uh, which means... Oh, we you know, desperately to... need to do that. Yeah, we have desperately needed it for a while. We've lived in this house for 17 years and have had the uh, contractor's generic paint on the wall since day one, uh, and it has seen better days. So um, we're very happy with how it's going so far, uh, but you know, it's still just a little bit anxiety inducing to figure out you know oh we need to move all of the stuff that's just been sitting in this particular corner for forever and things like that so we're not um, looking forward to doing that no no uh nor should you be uh anyway so that's that's been the main thing around in my neck of the woods how about yourself so i had a big week i you know i'm working this new job now working for Facebook, and we had a big offsite, which is to say more of an onsite in New York at the New York Facebook offices. And it was a lot of fun. We ate a lot of really good food. We played a lot. Well, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) We had a lot of really good food. We did a lot of really fun work because we're doing a really, really fun project. And we also did some serious work. I've been advised not to say as much as I've been saying, so I'm not going to say that much. But we had a wonderful time. I also got to see a Broadway show. I got to do some karaoke. I got to do all kinds of fun things. It was what, what a show did you see? fun week. <laughs> I, saw, I saw Skin of Our Teeth, Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth, which is being revived at Lincoln Center. And it is a long, weird show. It is three acts, two intermissions. And at the end of the second intermission, the old couple next to me was like, is that it? Is it over? And I'm like, "Uh, no, that's only the second intermission. And then we've still got a third act left to go. And they're like, oh, Christ. And then, although (laughs) probably not that, they they said, I was like, that's only the second, that's only the second intermission. There's a third act left to go. They're like, oh, man. So then they got up and left. Uh, They did not stick around for the third act. And indeed, it was a long, weird show, but it is a great show. And I highly recommend if you're in New York City. Check out Skin of Our Teeth at Lincoln Center. First of all, before we get started with this uh, week's episode in earnest, one of the things I want to say is uh, I was the one who edited the previous episode. And while editing it, I was like screaming at myself that I had just, you know, that, that I hadn't thought of something that I would that I should have said during the conversation. And that is when we were talking about the hate monger. Is he right wing? Is he left wing? You know, it's like they seem to be bouncing back and forth. And I think that I basically took a couple of your assumptions that you had made at the beginning at face value uh, when I don't think that they were necessarily correct. What kept on jumping to me as I was w- w- uh, listening to this is, well, yeah, Stan and Jack are not rightists but they're also not leftists. You know, I mean, this is a time and age when, you know, the left, you know, uh, when when Soviet communism and Chinese communism were things that were actually forces in the world. So the whole thing about preaching class hatred along with uh, race hatred and everything else would be, oh, you know, either, you know, Nazis or communists. The communists preach class hatred and the racist preach race, race hatred and that any one of these he doesn't really care which one he activates as long as he gets people to hate and that would also explain somewhat about latin american country that they were in in that you know it's just like oh well i guess he's mainly doing the class hatred thing there and then that's why the cia would uh would would want to go and intervene 
against him in that case. Anyway, that was just, I, I was just stuck out at me as a glaring omission in my thought process uh, in the previous episode. So I just wanted to start right. out with that. Right. Um, yes. Good, good. That's, that's a good point. Um, okay. Uh, well, great. Uh, we can add that. So what does that bring us to this month? So this month we are entering 1964 and important month in some ways. Yes, it is. Not in others. Let me point out that this actually was came out, I believe, in October of 63. So um, like that's about when it would have hit the stands. October, November, December, January. Yeah. So um, just in terms of the actual history of the world, it was still the month before Kennedy's assassination when these hit the stands. And indeed, there are there is a scene set at Idlewild Airport this month, so which uh, <laughs> would soon be renamed Kennedy uh, JFK Airport. But, right, uh, right, right. Okay, so um, let's go ahead and jump in. Yes, so uh, let's do Amazing Spider-Man. This is Spider-Man versus the Living Brain, and the issue is touted as a special tribute to teenagers issue, for better and worse, as it turns out. <laughs> The story begins with uh, this humanoid, this vaguely humanoid, very vaguely, computer that's being rolled into class. And apparently the, uh, what is it, ICM Corporation, as opposed to IBM, has this new computing machine and it's demonstrating it all over the country. And so right now their high school science class is now getting the latest demonstration. So right, um, so right away, I my biggest problem with this issue is I do not like the look of this living brain. Oh God, uh, no! It does it does <laughs> not look like it could stand up on its own two feet. It does not look like it could remain erect, which is always a big problem I have. You're never a problem with Kirby robots. Kirby robots always look like they can stand on their own two feet. Now, of course. Now that we have segways, like this thing could work the same way a segway does. So it could be that, you know, this is just very futuristic technology. It's segway type technology where it can stay up on rounded stuff. But I don't believe that Dicko ever believed that. I don't believe Dicko was taking seriously the challenge of making a robot that could stand upright. And I, so that's my biggest problem with this issue is that the robot doesn't look like it could stand. Yeah, I, I, I do not like the look of this thing at all either. Uh, I was assuming it was just gyroscopes or something like that. But, uh, you know, if there was any thought put into it at all, which there probably was not. Um, so incidentally, uh, Flash knocks off Pete's glasses, which break. And I believe that's the last time we see him wearing his glasses. Uh, yes. He thinks he, you know, says to himself or thinks to himself, you know, it's just like, ah, I don't need those things anymore anyway. One could also say, Pete, that you no longer need to wear a tie, but he will continue <laughs> to do that for a while. But he has started issuing the tie from time to time these days. You know, we, 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 will, yes. uh, we will see. Meanwhile, Flash and Pete really start getting at each other and uh, like looking like they might actually come to fisticuffs. So then we go into the demonstration of the living brain. Peter is chosen to help demonstrate what it can do. Meanwhile, there are a couple of folks in the background, I think that maybe janitors or something like that, who are thinking, hey, that computer would bring a bunch of money if we could steal it and sell it. Uh, so that of course, won't come back to, you know, pay off later in any way. So, oh, of so course over. not. So, um, so then as Peter is there, you're saying, oh, what question can you ask this that it could uh, calculate the answer to? And so some of the kids in class are saying, hey, what about Spider-Man's secret identity? 
they're like, oh, that's a great question. Let's just go ahead and feed all the stuff into the computer that'll let it figure this out. And he's like, uh, what's going on? And so fortunately, though, it spits out some computer code of some sort that it has to be decoded by a human. And uh, so Pete is going is assigned to take it home and decode it over the evening. So I should say that his teacher here is Mr. Warren. Now, later, his main college professor will also be Professor Warren. And then Hmm. Professor Warren will eventually turn evil and be responsible for the clone saga and will become the jackal. Now, it's unclear if his high school, it seems to be just a sheer coincidence that his high school teacher was named Mr. Warren and his college professor is Professor Warren. He does not seem to be the same guy who followed him from school to school. Um, Just lazy naming or inattentive naming on Stan's part, presumably that they have the same name. Yeah. Mr. Warren then says, why don't you two solve this in the gym in the boxing ring, which just does not seem like the kind of thing that a teacher should say to two students who are getting up in each other's faces here. I don't think that these days my kids' teachers would tell them you should put on boxing gloves and go beat each other up in the gym. I don't think that's that's something that would happen in school day. I don't think Pete is wondering what he's going to do because he has super strength. And so but that's not his sort of public persona. And uh, so he's just dodging flash uh, through the boxing ring. And of course, all the other students are thinking like, oh, he's just a coward. He doesn't want to get in there and actually fight. He's just trying to stay away. So Pete finally gets one punch in and knocks flash completely out of the ring. Uh, And he was like, oh, man, I was trying to pull my punch, but it still was too hard. And so Flash is like, man, what happened? And all the other students are like, hey, Flash, you just uh, putting on a show for us or something? And he's like, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Uh, So we'll get back to the fight in a minute. Meanwhile, the two underhanded folks are trying to steal the computer. And in the course of doing so, end up setting it running amok. And apparently, the ICM Corporation has built this computing machine to also have big weaponized arms that could spin around and clock people in the head. Because that was made so much sense. Uh, you never know. You never know when you're going <laughs> to need that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then we go back to the boxing ring. When some of the commotion about the living brain being out of control happens, that's right as Pete was about to give a soft punch to Flash's face. Flash turns his head to hear what's going on, and it ends up looking like a real sucker punch. And everyone, once again, is like, oh, Peter, how could you do that? That's such an unfair thing. Yeah. So he can't win for losing, and which is, yep. you know, his, his story. So at that point, he then uh, ditches Flash's uh, unconscious body in the locker room uh, and then turns into Spider-Man. And uh, in the caption, it says, exactly 30 seconds later. Uh, Stanley likes a lot of that exactly some small amount of time. Yes. You know, and it's like, what what does that have to do with anything? Why couldn't it have been 28 seconds? (laughs) Why couldn't it have been 35 seconds? But uh, exactly 30 seconds later, he goes and finds computer running amok. Uh, he is trying to save the other students from it. And he's like, hey, get out of here. And they're like, well, this door is jammed. We're stuck. So then he shoves open the door and gets rid of the other kids. 
Then, but that means that Spider-Man has now lost the living brain. He doesn't know where it is. Then it sneaks up on him and knocks a door over on top of him and then essentially crushes him underneath the door. And then sort of a humorous situation where then he's starting to get up and shrug the door off his shoulders when then the two ne'er-do-wells come through chasing the living brain and they go and step on the doors. (laughs) He's knocked down again as this all happens. Finally, Pete is able to deactivate the... um, you know, is able to flip the switch from good from evil to good, basically, in the living right. brain. As a Simpsons reference for all those of you who are not part of our generation. So meanwhile, the two ne'er-do-wells are running away. They're trying to catch them. And so they are running away and going to go through the locker room. Well, that was exactly where Pete had stashed uh, Flash Thompson's uh, unconscious body. Well, he has now come back to consciousness and is getting dressed up and trying to figure out what he's going to tell the kids after being humiliated by Peter Parker. And then the two thieves and come through the locker room at that exact moment and trip over Flash Thompson. And then so everyone thinks, oh, wow, you know, uh, Flash, you you apprehended the two bad guys. You're awesome. He's like, yeah, I am. And then Pete is like, hey, you know what? This is a chance for me to go ahead and screw with Flash Thompson. He's like, you know what, Flash? I didn't see you during the whole sp- during the whole time that Spider-Man was here. And you just took care of those uh, those two criminals and you know i'm thinking you just took a dive for me in the boxing ring because you didn't want to let on that you're secretly spider-man then he's like wait what no i everyone's crowding around him just teasing him about being spider-man and then pete feels good that he's sort of deep sixed his bully and is walking home feeling good about himself a rare issue ending on pete being happy or but again it's not the entire issue but this is there's two stories in this issue but the first story ends with him happily whistling as he walks down the street, half and half Peter Parker in his suit and half Spider-Man in that way that Dicka would do. It says, as for Flash, I managed to wallop him without giving myself away. All in all, it's been a mighty pleasant day. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's nice. Actually, I guess this is two stories in a row that have had endings where Pete was, uh, was on an upswing. So I think this story is delightful. It is intricately plotted. It's got lots of zany reversals and neat little plot tricks. And it's just very fun to get get him in the ring with Flash and to end with this whole thing being this elaborate trap for Flash to make Flash look like Spider-Man. Because, of course, it's pretty ridiculous. People wouldn't figure out Pete was Spider-Man at this point, given that Spider-Man has been in this high school twice. But then they've got a very clever way out of that. They're going like, oh, yes, yes this will explain it all. Flash is Spider-Man. And it is who would I seem more just... believable to be Spider-Man than than Peter Parker, who has a reputation as just being kind of a wimp. Right. Right. And I just think it's I think it's delightful. I think it's great to see Peter get his own and come up with a clever way to not only throw suspicion off himself, but then uh, get Flash's coat in the process. I think that the the living brain looks ridiculous and is <laughs> one of the I mean, if you think about the run that Dicko has had in terms of creating villains for every single issue that became these immortal designs that would then be later immortalized by Hollywood and everybody, you know, would love right up to this day would fill the, you know, the most popular movie of last year, one of the most popular movies of all time, Spider-Man No Way Home, just filled with Dicko designs. So this is a rare miss for Dicko. This is a bad design from Dicko in the midst of a run of epically great designs. But it is still, I think this is this part of the issue that Dicko draws. We're about to get to a part of the issue Dicko does not draw, but this part is delightful and presumably Dicko plotted it as well. Um, I find it delightful. 
Yeah, it's always fun to see him fighting in his high school. Uh, you know, just him trying to rescue all of his friends and enemies in his high school class. Uh, and this is, I think, the second time we've seen that happen, right? The other time was right. Sandman. Right, yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's it, that's always fun. I am not a big fan of the design of the living brain. Ditko is going to have some misses as we go on through the uh, through the next few years here um and this is i think the first one of his real misses uh you know eventually we'll have more things like especially towards the end when he's sort of phoning it in and you have like meteor man and uh a guy the named looter <laughs> yeah right. sorry sorry not meteor man the looter <laughs> even though meteor man would make so much more sense uh anyway that's a, that's a tale for another day uh so meanwhile we get to this backup feature which I guess goes into the whole like special tribute to teenagers issue, you know, between him fighting in the school and then this backup story. And I don't like this backup story at all. No, not at all. So this is the first time in a Spider-Man comic we have the art of Jack Kirby. There is a backup yes. story written by Stan Lee, art drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Steve Ditko. And Boy, oh boy, if you want to make the case that the pencilers were plotting these books and not Stan, this is a good place to make that case because suddenly Spider-Man is a completely different person in this backup oh, feature yeah. than he was he in the weird feature. He is I, I mean, a total you know, jerk. I mean, Peter Parker can be kind of a, a, a prickly kind of guy from time to time. You know, he can be uh, a little vengeful. He can be a little, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. What is Spiteful? the word I'm looking for? Spiteful. Yeah, that's that's not a bad one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just sort of kind of nasty from time to time. But it's usually brought from a place of, you know, he's feeling down about something and uh, he's sort of taking it out on, uh, you know, something. Uh, but here in this case, it's not. It's just Spider-Man's like, hey, you know what? I think it's uh, I think I just want to go and um, pick a fight with uh, the Human Torch. Because well, he says this is where I'm gonna do he today. says. This is where Doris Evans, the Torch's girlfriend, lives. While I'm in the neighborhood, I'll pay her a visit and show her what she's missing by not dating Spider-Man. He's going to go hit on Dory Evans just because she's Torch's girlfriend. And he's like, hey, there's a girl here who's dating the Human Torch. I'll go go ahead and hit on her myself to show her what she's missing. Like, okay, this is a completely different person than we read about in the first half of this issue. (laughs) Yeah, just not him whatsoever. Uh, yeah, he can be a bit of a jerk from time to time, but not in this way, not this kind of jerk. So anyway, yeah, he shows up uh, in the neighborhood and, um, you know, Johnny Storm has a, a jaguar that he's showing off to the kids. I'm like, I guess he's just getting money from Reed. I don't know how, how he's pulling some of that off. I get the feeling he goes to the junkyard and offers to fix up junker cars and then gets great cars that way. Maybe. Uh, so anyway, he, you know, sneaks into this party that uh, Johnny is showing off his flame powers to a bunch of the teenagers. He then sets up a whole bunch of webs outside and then um, creates a web bat like a big. And once again, this is just one of the things I never like when he goes ahead and creates physical objects, 3D objects from his webs uh, in some way. So he sends this in just to mess with Johnny. And then he's, you know, basically bragging about him, humiliating him. Once again, not the character that we know and love. Johnny burns off the webs that have gotten on him with his flame and then goes chasing Spider-Man 
through the sky. And it's one of these things where it's like, so how is Spider-Man swinging up there when we see that it's all like two-story residential houses? (laughs) They end up on the beach. I'm assuming this is somewhere on uh, Long Island Sound. Spider-Man is able to use his little web parachutes to douse the flame with sand. And once again, we have Human Torch doing his whole like flame as though it were Green Lantern's power sort of thing, where he creates fire buzzsaws to go and send after him. And we once again see Spider-Man running in a zigzag pattern, which we've seen Jack Kirby do when he's drawn Spider-Man in the past, which really does not seem like a very Spider-Man way to uh, use his agility. So uh, then eventually the rest of the Fantastic Four shows up trying to break this whole thing up. And they're actually being kind of nice to Spider-Man, you know, even though Spider-Man was there being a jerk. And Spider-Man is then a jerk to them. (laughs) yes once again what is going on with this stuff um and so then that's just pretty much it well but then so suddenly you get sue sue is also out of character even though she is being penciled by the same person who normally pencils her and then suddenly sue is like the wasp here she says to spider-man you're entirely too clever and adorable to be fighting with us i'll bet you're as handsome as you are muscular under that mask And then Ben's like, oh, cut it out, Sue. I just ate. And she says, now, why don't you boys just shake hands and bury the hatchet like gentlemen? And then he says, then Spider-Man says, it's a good thing you got Mr. Fantastic in the thing to wet nurse you. And as for your sister, Sue, she's the only good thing about the overrated Fantastic Four. And then he leaves and he's doing another thing, making little web sculptures. He leaves a little web heart for Sue. And that's the end of the issue. So Sue, presumably Sue is acting as boy crazy as the Wasp here, just to seduce Spider-Man into leaving, presumably. <laughs> she, uh, I assume she is not actually attracted to Spider-Man. That would be entirely out of character for her. Like but just who butter, knows? buttering him up, basically. Like, you know, flattering him to try to get him to, uh, to drop his... Uh, his antics yeah uh maybe yes. so oh and by the way with the little uh you know web sculptures the heart at the end is actually uh one of the more believable ones because he just has to do a heart shape on the sand so you know he can definitely right. do that but um however you know leaving this thing about like hey baby invisible girl you know just see what you're missing too along with dory evans you're all missing this and it's just yeah it's it's um I just, I was just like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not okay with this story. It's, it's not, <laughs> I'm just, this is an imaginary story as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> did, this yes. did not happen. What a, what a, you know, a delightful first issue. I don't, I guess maybe Dicko was uh, getting behind on his deadlines or something. And they said, okay, let's go ahead and do a shorter lead, lead story by Dicko. But even then he's inking this issue. So I don't know how much he's getting caught up on his deadlines. I don't know why they've got Kirby doing a backup story here that is terrible in the back of a delightful Dicko issue, but they did it. <laughs> All right. So I think we're done with making Spider-Man. Uh, as you said, a, a decent first issue, although the designs are uh, sorry, a decent first story, although the designs are a little suspect and a pretty super lame second story. So, yes, uh, I believe it's your turn next. Okay. So let's move on to Fantastic Four number 22. This is a monumentous book. This is a huge book in the history of the Fantastic Four, in the history of the Marvel Universe, because suddenly in this book, Sue Storm goes from the weakest member of the Fantastic Four to the strongest, which she will remain to this day. And it is long overdue. It was desperately needed. Stan has always been really good with these books of just going like, this isn't working. You know, this is a popular book. It's selling well enough. We're going to keep publishing it, but it's time to monkey around with it. It's time to go ahead and tinker with it. And he realized, okay, I'm tired of 
having to sort of come up with ways for Sue to be sort of useful in the end of the story when she suddenly, you know, turns invisible and grabs the thing out of the guy's hand, then I'm going to have her actually be a big old badass from this point on. And so that is Fantastic Four 22. We have the return of the Mole Man, who has not been seen since the first issue. Right away, so the cover, I don't know who inked the cover. It looks like maybe Ayers. I like the cover. It's nicely inked. And then we get to the inside where George Bell is continuing to ink and just looks awful. Looks maybe even worse than last issue. Reed's face on the splash page. What the hell? Oh, my God. I mean, this I've is... definitely seen much worse. What's what's jumping out at you is like so uh, horrible. It's about so it. what? Well, it's it's just it's just so blotchy and splotchy and splotchy. Splotchy is the only word for it. And just jagged. Just you know, obviously the thing he makes the thing much jagged than he's ever been before. But just oh, just the just oh the. But then but then it just gets worse. The thing on the top of page two. Like, look at the well, thing for, on the first top of all, page before we, before we do that, on the splash page, I just want to point out that um, I'm pretty sure that Sue on here is probably a swipe from a from a photo in a girly magazine. That that yeah. looks like that was um, him using uh, using that as as photo reference for her position there. Anyway, okay, so go on. You're saying second page, second page. Look at thing on the top panel of the second page. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. I, I got you. Look at that. Isn't that just horrific? I mean, it is, but no worse than he looked in the first, in like the second or third issues. Yes, but then there had been progress and now it has all been undone. He just <laughs> looks, I just think this is just absolutely some of the worst art Marvel has ever published, this picture of the thing on the top of page two. Um, anyway, so let's go ahead and do this issue, The Return of the Moment. So we begin with Reed is doing, is seemingly testing Sue's powers as a matter of fact, these tests turned out to be very productive because he manages teaching her how to greatly increase her powers. She is first wearing this helmet and she says, you know, Reed, this measuring device to test my invisibility would make the kookiest hat. And she is showing it <laughs> off. And as you say, she kind of looks like a um, figure model, as they would say at the time. But then Johnny and Ben are engaging in their antics. And suddenly, the, as they're attacking each other, Sue throws up a force field. And she says... He, Reed says, Sue, you've done it. You've created a shield of invisible energy. And right away, these force fields are really badass. She's able to <laughs> stop Ben from ramming into one. It just dents it. She, Johnny isn't able to burn through them. And then she's able to shape them into all sorts of interesting shapes right away. Then we have a bizarre celebrity cameo. Kirby did like doing his caricatures. And so then we have Fred Gwynn from the show Car 54, Where Are You, shows up. Oh, and, is uh, that what this is? I didn't, yes. I didn't know. Um, but uh, so suddenly the police are here to complain about the Fantastic Four, uh, various things, but including having an ICBM uh, in their <laughs> headquarters. And suddenly they're besieged, they're besieged with phone calls from people complaining about various things they're doing about Johnny Storm, Johnny Storm. Yes, Johnny yeah, Storm. That's right. Uh, about <laughs> you're, you're so used I to be thought like I was Johnny, Johnny Torch. Torch. Right, exactly. Yes. Go on. About about Johnny Storm melting a statue, about all these things people are complaining about. But right away, Sue continuing to be badass. These two people are complaining, and then they're suddenly just thrown back down the hallway and out the door. And it's like, well, what just happened? It's like, oh, Sue turned a cart invisible and herself invisible, which she's not supposed to be able to do, and shoved them out of the headquarters invisibly. And it's like, oh, this is just so much fun. This is awesome. And uh, so then 
they decide, okay, clearly we are being hectored by a lot of people. A lot of people are complaining. Let's go ahead and buy and buy our own private island off the shore of Jersey to keep our stuff like our ICBM at so people will stop complaining to us. So they buy an island, they fly out there in their cool little jet type thing, and they arrive and then they quickly run into problems there. It turns out the bull man is there and he arranged this entire thing. He arranged for all those people to complain about the ICBM and and the melting statues and everything else uh, just so that he knew the only solution that the FF could possibly turn to would be to buy this island off of the New Jersey shore. And well, yeah, so, he, had... so he said he said that he had made sure that uh, he had placed an ad for the island or something like that so that they would see it. Um, and, you know, so it's like, OK, but hasn't the mole man been like just literally living in a cave, escaping from civilization for the last, you know, decades or something like that. How would he even know who to call <laughs> or what's going on? I know I'm overthinking this, but that did occur I think to you're me overthinking it. Yes. So, so then he reveals how he survived Fantastic Four number one. He then, though, one of the problems with this issue is his plan is basically too similar to his plan in Fantastic Four number one. Once again, he is sucking cities down into the ground with these huge underground elevators he builds. And, but this time he's got a little bit more of a elaborate plan. He's going to do both New York and Moscow. It's funny, it's never Washington, D.C. and Moscow. Whenever they're talking about destroying the two main cities of the Cold War powers, it's always New York and Moscow. I, I don't know how Washington, D.C. feels about that. But, well, I don't know. Washington D.C. has shown up in both Hulk and in X Men at this point as uh, as a city that's being threatened. Um, so right. it happens from time to time. But like you know, the movie Failsafe comes out right around the time this comic is released, and in that one, it's like, oh, you know, if you nuke Moscow, we'll nuke New York. It's like, well, what about Washington? Okay, <laughs> so then, so then the mole man is going to hit the button to make this happen, but the button is now encased in a force field, and he can't press it. And because Sue is just there being all kinds of badass, there is a bit that is very common in these issues where they suddenly knock the four members of the Fantastic Four through four different trap doors into four different rooms that is a specially designed trap for each one of them. They each get to show their powers as they escape in fairly cool sequences, very clever ways of figuring out these uh, somewhat fiendish traps and getting out of them. Then they all get back. They attack the mole man. They get away. The mole man is finally like, oh, good, I can press the button. But whoops, Reed has switched around the little elevators so that the elevator underneath this island. So apparently the mole man has every single square inch of Earth has a little elevator underneath it because (laughs) Reed is able to go like, I will trigger the one that is underneath this very island. Like, well, why would he have built one there if he didn't want one there? Uh, Presumably he had to put a lot of work into building all these little elevators. But mole man triggers the button and only sinks himself into the ocean and everybody else goes home. And we have a huge issue. We have an issue where suddenly, you know, it's always been a problem for Stan, I think, that Stan doesn't really want to have women kicking a lot of ass. And now Stan has changed his position on that. She Again, she's kicking it. I mean, what are the problems? You know, I always grew up going like, oh, you know, why don't they let women be kick-ass in superhero comics? It's a problem. And then when I was... When my daughter was very young, she was like three or four. I'm like, I'm going to show you a cartoon with what with Superman and Wonder Woman because I want you to see, you know, a cool female superhero. And it was the one where it was an episode of Justice League where Wonder Woman and Superman are tricked into fighting each other. And as they're fighting each other, 
Superman is just beating the hell out of Wonder Woman because he doesn't know it's her. And he's seeing an illusion of a monster while he's beating the hell out of her. And I was like, oh, that's the reason why superheroes <laughs> don't fight too much. It's not so much because the male writers who create them don't want to see girls kicking ass. It's because they don't want to show girls getting their ass kicked. And that's <laughs> yeah. why girls tend to have non-physical powers because they don't want – if the girl's power is that she's strong, then she's going to get in fistfights and you're going to have to show that girl getting punched in the face a lot. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I suddenly am so much more sympathetic to not having girls have strength-based powers. It's not entirely because you don't want to see them kicking ass. It's because you don't want to see them getting their ass kicked. And so that's why women tend to have more indirect powers. Like Sue's power will be very badass, but it will still be a relatively indirect power. She will not be going blow-to-blow, toe-to-toe with people. And I think that's good. I think it is a fantastic power she has. I think this is great. I think this is... Uh, a great issue, atrociously inked, the art looks hideous, but um, well <laughs> plotted by Kirby and um, scripted by Stan. And I think I give Stan generally most of the credit for this change in Sue. I assume this came from Stan. I don't know. I don't know why I would assume that. But uh, but I think Stan and Jack working together, however they magically work together, did fantastic work. Ruined by a terrible anchor, but fantastic penciling and writing in this issue. Yes, and certainly uh, I, I welcome the force fields. Uh, those will, of course, be um, her primary power, really, going forward from here. That being said, I, you know, I, while I can see that George Bell has his minuses, I don't quite get your hate for him. But you know, that's that's fine. <laughs> just, just, just like all right, page fifteen, upper left hand corner. Mole man's face. All right, upper left corner. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's not ideal. Uh, but then a lot of these things aren't ideal. You know, I mean, I, it just doesn't strike me as any more rushed or slapdash than many Dick Ayers issues. You know, Dick Ayers inked issues, or I'm not, you know, certainly I, yes, it's rushed and slapdash, but it's also just so jagged and blotchy and spotchy, spotchy I, I, man, I mean, the spotchiness. You know, I I I don't mind that. It's it's it seems like an interesting stylistic choice to me. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, have I mentioned? Have I mentioned I haven't been getting much inking work lately? Yeah, yeah. It's because you're like, hey, hire me, Steve Bird. I look just like George Bell, um, <laughs> aka George Russo's. Yeah. Okay. I just I consider this to be the most hideous art Marvel has published. Period. Um, so far, I think that this is worse than heck at his worst. Heck inked by uh, Ayers is much more disappointing to me. No, no, it's not true. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's Fantastic Four. A huge issue. A great change in the character. A Sue Storm finally becomes a character for the ages with this issue. And it is great and fun. Proves that Mole Man was not a one-off villain that he can sustain several interesting comics and would become a great character over the years. And I'm glad that they were able to bring him back and make him more of a ongoing concern. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was, it's also nice just to see, you know, as you said that somebody who they first introduced with a, and we'll never see him again. You know, he's been taken care of permanently. Be like, yeah, no, we're, we're taking all that stuff back in those early <laughs> yeah. issues. You know, they're, they're, we're, we're, we're going to bring these guys back. We got a whole universe we're creating here. 
Yeah, they've gone too much the other way now, where like now every issue ends with like, he got away, we'll see him again soon. And I'm like, yeah. I, I kind of miss the old days of like, we'll never see him again. <laughs> I kind of miss, you know, <laughs> actually trying to have some sort of closure in these issues. But uh, but it's uh, they need to find the right balance. Okay, so let's move on to Journey into Mystery. And uh, I will do my best to do this quickly since this isn't, you know, the most momentous of issues. I mean, it's momentous in that it is not momentous. It is the final non-Kirby issue. (laughs) It almost sounds like, ah, yes, so this is skiffle music, which is important in that it was about to be displaced by the Beatles. You know, it's (laughs) like, yeah, that's the only thing that it's known for. (laughs) Okay. Well, the Beatles were originally uh, a skiffle band. The Silver Beatles, the original band that the boys formed, was going to be a skiffle band called the the Silver Beatles. And then they changed it because skiffle went out. And they're like, no, let's be rock and roll. Yeah, uh, I I have no idea what skiffle sounds like. I just know the name. No, I have no idea either. (laughs) So uh, anyway, so uh, to to get into this, uh, as we saw at the end of last issue, Thor was seemingly robbing banks and gloating about how evil he was and how he can get away with it because he's Thor. So Thor is now finding himself hounded and uh, hunted in the streets. Um, That splash page just looks so weird. I do not know what is going on with Thor's feet um in this uh it just looks like he is drawn in a completely different perspective actually it looks like it looks like gravity's not working right on this page no (laughs) nobody's feet are really (laughs) connecting with the ground no it's just uh well some of them are it's like a group of them in the lower right are but then thor's isn't that guy on the left is definitely just floating (laughs) off into space i don't know what's going on cops are actually firing bullets at thor trying to stop him because he's on this supposedly on this crime spree Still totally unclear if Thor is bulletproof. That does not get established for many, many years. He's swatting the bullets away with his hammer for the time being. We then have a bit of a review of what happened Yes, uh, in the previous issue. Thor then takes off to go back to his office and turn back into Don Blake. Uh, if nothing else, just to get away from being hounded for being Thor and everyone thinks he's now evil. So uh, apparently Don and Jane are supposed to go out for a dinner date. Uh, which Don has, of course, completely forgotten about uh, because he's got other things to worry about. <clears throat> so then they're heading out. And he's taking her out to a really fancy date on the at the Ritz Terrace, the most glamorous place in town, and she's thrilled. And so that just seems weird. It's like with this and the Hank and Jan relationship, they can never really make up whether they're actually romantically involved or whether one of them just wants to be romantically involved or you know what's going on with that so this is part well, of can it was flash. sort of this crazy idea of when you know it used to be dating was such a casual thing where it's like hey person who i'm not necessarily together with let's go on a date and uh then it seems like this is a mostly unrequited relationship but suddenly this unrequited relationship is going on this very fancy date um, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's unrequited. She seems to be into him and he's definitely into her, but he just can't say anything about it. Anyway. True. So then, uh, of course, Mr. Hyde happens to overhear them talking about their date this evening, because remember, Mr. Hyde actually has a vendetta against Don Blake, which is what brought them into this in the first place. Uh, so then they're out at this romantic dinner, uh, and things seem to be progressing. And then Mr. Hyde shows up. And takes them both hostage, basically. Mr. Hyde takes them both to a uh, some secluded area here, and some secluded building, and ties up Blake against a pole. Once again, all bad guys in these early comics have to have castles. 
And so they say, drive straight up to the top of that hill. That old deserted castle is the home of Mr. Hyde. So, you know, this, these are all set around the New York area, but I don't know if this is all Belvedere Castle in Central Park, but somehow there's all sorts of <laughs> castles in the nearby area that, uh, that the bad guys make their homes in. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think there are that many castles around in the New York area, much less abandoned castles. You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like abandoned castles are the things you find in like Ireland, right, or the Alps. So Mr. Hyde sets up a time bomb to say that okay, this is going to go off in twenty four hours and will kill Blake if I'm not here to disarm it. So then, therefore, uh, Jane, you can't do anything to try to uh, stop me from doing what I'm doing because if I'm apprehended, then. Blake will die. Hyde then heads off and tries to steal a Polaris submarine. What the hell? (laughs) I know. This is is a continuing problem where it's like you have these villains who are primarily revenge based. And it's like, okay, this villain wants revenge. They're going to, you know, attempt to defeat the heroes. And then you get to these moments where it's like, okay, now the hero is defeated. What does the villain want now? And Stan just has no idea. And so it's like, uh, so just as with when Dr. Doom had defeated the Fantastic Four, it's like, I want um, a seat in President Kennedy's cabinet. Here you have Mr. Hyde, like, okay, I've defeated Don Blake. I've kidnapped Jane. What do I do now? I want to steal a Polaris submarine. Again, is he going to sell it to the Soviets or something? That's what I was thinking. But no, he says here, once the sub is mine, I shall roam the seven seas like a king and you (laughs) shall become my queen, he says to Jane. (laughs) What the hell? You're going to become Captain Nemo now? (laughs) Uh, Yes. So uh, meanwhile, uh, Blake back in the um, castle where he's tied up is trying to reach out to grab his walking stick so that he can turn back into Thor. And he finally is just able to stretch far enough that he's able to do it. So uh, once again, seeming to violate your usual rule of you know, if it's something that he could have done an hour ago anyway, but just the plot demanded that he didn't have the willpower to get it done yet, uh, then that's sort of a bad <laughs> plot point. There should right. have been something he then figured out to do that would have been able to get it into his hands. So he's then able to turn himself into Thor, free himself from the ropes. Meanwhile, we see that Odin just decides to go and check in on Thor and see what's going on uh, mentally. So he sees, okay, he's fighting this guy, Mr. Hyde. Uh, and then we go back to the action at hand. So we just know that Odin's eyes are on the action. And this is the last time in the 1960s that we will see Odin without spectacular headgear. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. That's a, that's once again, a relatively plain helmet there. So, uh, Thor shows up right as, uh, Hyde is entering into the submarine with Jane. They then get into a battle over this stuff. Jane, meanwhile, is worried that if Thor wins, then that means that Blake will die because of the whole time bomb, uh, trap thing that was set up. So Jane ends up actually covering up Thor's hammer at one point so that he can't find it so that maybe he will lose so that Blake won't be killed. Meanwhile, uh, on the top first panel on page 12, that is not a good Thor face. No, it is really ugly. <laughs> heck art. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I am often a, a heck defender as you know, but yeah, this is one issue where it just, his work does not work well. With this oh no, this whole issue is really rushed and sloppy and ugly. Yeah. Yeah. So Thor is able to go ahead and use his cape 
to create a tornado inside the submarine. Mr. Hyde jumps out of the submarine, like, I got to get away from here, and then uh, I'll, I'll make another plan later. Jane is, meanwhile, saying, oh, no, Blake's going to die because Mr. Hyde won't be there to stop him. And then so uh, Thor says, oh, okay, I have to set Orion at ease without saying, hey, he's not going to die because I'm him. So he says, oh, don't fear. I shall fly to Hyde's castle and set him free. No harm will come to Don Blake while Thor lives. And then as he flies off, Jane is saying to herself, but how does Thor know where Hyde's castle is? Or even that Don is in the castle. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then she's like, I'm afraid that Thor will always be an enigma to me. <laughs> there are hundreds of abandoned castles dotting the area around New York. He could be in any of them. <laughs> right. So meanwhile, as we said, Odin had been looking in at this whole thing. And when he saw that she was trying to stop him from defeating Mr. Hyde because she was afraid that Don Blake was going to die. Uh, Odin sees this as cowardly and uh, malicious behavior. Thor had been petitioning for her to be made an Asgardian, essentially made an immortal so that he could marry her. And Odin had been open to the idea, uh, but then he sees her acting in this completely unacceptable way to him and says, nope, that's it. How could you possibly be in love with this woman? She's terrible. No soup for you. Then we just have Thor going, I hate this uh, at the end. And that, that's pretty much it. So, you know, it, it's a, it's not, not the best issue. <laughs> no, a, a ignominious end to Hex ignominious run on Thor. Um, you know, Mr. Hyde is a good villain. He's a villain who's going to have a lot of juice in him over the years. I like the idea of Thor at least has a plan with Jane now. Like he's going to try to convince Odin that she could be an immortal, which will be a storyline that will progress nicely over the upcoming years. But a really rushed, sloppy, terribly drawn issue, awkwardly plotted to be generous <laughs> and uh, not a good issue. Yes. Um, I don't really have much more commentary other than that. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Don Heck is a poor fit for this issue. Uh, this plot doesn't really make any sense. Hyde's motivations don't really make any sense. The relationship as it stands between Don and uh, Jane don't make any sense in this case. Yeah, I'm not, not a big fan of that one. But then we get to the back of the issue, which has a delightful story. Yes. And so uh, this is a bit, as you mentioned last episode, this is a bit of a turn for Tales of Asgard in that before now, as I've usually said, you know, I wasn't really going to talk about the plot because the plot was just sort of a little bit uh, sketchy. Uh, It was just sort of a a more sweeping visuals uh, that we were seeing. This one is a little more plotty than we've seen before. And instead of talking about younger Odin, we are seeing um, youthful Thor and Loki in this one. So this is the story of Thor going ahead and stealing some mythical apples, some golden apples of the goddess Iduna uh, from some storm giants. So... Thor and Loki are, you know, just saying, hey, we're going to go get into some, you know, get into some adventures here. Let's go into the Storm Giant house. And the Storm Giants are enormous. Like they are, you know, Thor and Loki are the size of maybe mice compared to these things. We've talked about this in the past, how this totally goes against the advice in my book, where I talk about in my book, how in the John Carter of Mars movie, you know, instead of having him fight a normal size ape, they had him fight a 30 foot tall ape. And I'm like, going, no, it would be so much more interesting if he fought a normal size ape instead of finding a 30 foot tall ape. It's so lame. But I totally am going to go against my own advice here because I love, you know, in the Thor movies, on the other hand, they made the giants just about 10 feet tall. The ice giants in the 
original Thor film were just about 10 feet tall. And I absolutely prefer these giant giants. I think it is just makes for delightful visuals to see young Thor and young Loki fighting these giant giants in sort of a very Jack and the Beanstalk type story. I wonder, yeah, it's very much a Jack and the Beanstalk type story. One thing I wonder is in the movies, if they were just thinking that since Loki is supposed to be the, you know, basically a frost giant and, you know, theoretically, I'm guessing just looks more like a human or an Asgardian because of some sort of, you know, magic or something like that, that maybe they wanted to have them be closer to the size of humans so that that would be a little bit more believable. I I think it made sense. I think that ultimately the movies had good reasons to do it the way they did it. But I do, but it does make it just more enjoyable for me to go back and read these old issues going like, okay, let's see some real Thor versus giant fun. Yes. So uh, meanwhile, speaking of Thor versus giant fun, uh, the two uh, young kids, the two kids or godlings, as they sometimes call them, uh, are hiding out, trying to sneak around uh, the storm giants while they're uh, eating in their boorish kind of way. And uh, Loki then, because he is the god of mischief, uh, pushes Thor out into sight uh, so that he is seen by the storm giants. And Thor just boldly says you know, hey, you can't talk to me that way. I'm, you know, the son of, I'm the son of Odin, and I'm here to return the golden apples to Iduna. Uh, So he's, you know, just like, okay, well, now that I'm out here, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I am who I am. You don't deserve these things. I'm going to take them and give them to the rightful owner. So the storm giants, of course, do not take this well, and they try to attack him. And Thor, as a, you know, like I said, a mouse-sized being compared to these uh, things, shows a lot of fight. So he knocks over a table, uh, sorry, destroys a table, basically, uh, throws a salt or pepper shaker, (laughs) I guess a pepper shaker, at one of their faces and gets pepper all in his eyes. And uh, one of the giants is blowing uh, Thor off the table. They're fighting, and then eventually Loki ends up throwing a bunch of green leaves onto the Storm Giant's fire that creates a huge plume of smoke, which then gives the uh, godlings cover to do what they were going to do. So they then go and find the golden apples that are on the back of the, what is it called here, atop Agnar, king of the eagles, the eternal prisoner of the storm giants. And Loki is planning on just taking the basket of apples off of Agnar's back and returning them, but Thor instead frees Agnar from the storm giants and takes the apples back with the eagle. Uh, And Odin is very pleased with Thor's behavior. Loki is, meanwhile, was hoping to take full credit, full and sole credit, for returning the apples. But he realizes that Odin was not deceived. And uh, so Thor is getting to try playing around with Odin's Warhammer, which will eventually become Thor's hammer that we know and love. Uh, But he's, you know, just learning to he's just getting strong enough to pick the thing up. Uh, and, right. you know, Odin does have a much more fabulous helmet than he uh, than he has at various points in the recent past. Yes. So this is uh, this story is by Lee Kirby and Paul Reinman, who is quickly becoming a fantastic anchor. And we will see him twice more this month. And it is a gorgeous story. It is. And the great news is that Kirby, after having been just in the back of the book doing Tales of Asgard uh, for the last four or five issues, 
is now going to be doing the whole book starting next month. And Tales, even better, Tales of Asgard will continue in the back. And Kirby will also be doing the lead story in the front. Yep. All right. So uh, I don't really have anything more to add to that. I think you made a good wrap up. So uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next one since we have a bunch of right. cover today. Let's go so ahead what? and do the two stories in Strange Tales 116. Now, I assume this cover also inked by George Bell. What on earth the thing on the cover <laughs> of Strange Tales yeah. 116? No, I'll, I'll definitely give you that one. Yeah, that's that's not good. What? Where is his face? His face completely disappears into all the jackedness uh, and this and in the issue. Um, so we find out that Strange Tales 116, still no mention of Doctor Strange on the cover. It will take a long time before they start mentioning that, hey, here in this issue of Strange Tales, there's actually going to be a strange dude. There is actually going to be Doctor Strange in Strange Tales. He is just completely not mentioned on the cover. Instead, we see on the cover Johnny fighting Ben with Alicia and the puppet master there. So then we open the issue to find out that this issue is written signly and the art is the worst of all possible worlds, penciled by Dick Ayers, inked by George Bell. And holy hell, it is hideous. So then... <laughs> yeah, we... that, that, that splash page image of the puppet master holding his torch doll. Um, yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's once again, you, if you squint just right, you might be able like, oh, I could see some character to that. But no, nah, I'm, I'm not a big fan. So then uh, he they actually are spending the time in these early issues to go like, hey, you thought this guy was dead. Here's how he didn't die. So uh, the puppet master re- remi- remembers how he didn't die when he was being attacked by the giant squid. Last we saw him, uh, he then decides to take over Johnny and he has Johnny do something very interesting given what will later happen. He controls Johnny and has Johnny go and hit on Alicia. He has Johnny fly into Alicia Masters' studio, uh, the blind sculpturist who is in love with the thing, and Johnny is suddenly all hitting on her. Hi, Alicia Dole, long time no see. Flame off. I don't need my flame in your round, beautiful. You set my heart on fire all by yourself. Come on, give me a kiss, gorgeous. You're not afraid of that pug ugly thing, are you? So, of course... Much later, John Byrne would decide to go ahead and get Johnny and Alicia together when Ben was living off planet for a while. And this is a little preview of that. Indeed, Johnny (laughs) would eventually really do this when he was not being controlled by the puppet master. But for now, uh, it is just a matter of mind control. So then the thing, of course, comes in on them. He is not happy to find them there. The air is combination art on the thing is absolutely hideous and then johnny and ben get in a big fight it, they fight all over town they fight all the way over to Idlewild airport which would soon change its name to john f kennedy airport um so um, alicia uh, about, about the art about the art let me just back up for a second here page five page five has both panels where i will definitely agree with you that that's just a terrible rendition of the thing primarily the bottom panel of the page like that is just, uh, yeah, exactly. But I will argue that the top two panels of the page, I really like the way that those work uh, between the penciling and inking. They, they've got a lot of, I mean, they've got some chiaroscuro to them, as we've talked about before. They, um, and they have a lot of dynamism to them. Uh, and, you know, I just really like the, the way that his, you know, form is depicted in those two. Uh, but at the same time, at the bottom of the page, that's just a train wreck. It's a train wreck. 
It's awful. So then they have a big fight. It goes all the way out to Adderwell Airport. Alicia eventually figures out, oh, Johnny was probably being affected by my stepfather, the puppet master. I know he has a headquarters out near Idlewild. So then they all end up converging on the airport. Uh, Johnny, you know, uh, the puppet master is trying to control the torch to fly out in front of a plane where he'll be hit. But then they figure out what's going on. Ben goes ahead and confronts Puppet Master. But Alicia's like, ah, oh, you should just let him run away. And <laughs> he's still my stepfather. And then they're like, okay, we'll let him run away. He's harmless now. It's like, how is he harmless? He's just as harmful as he was just a second ago. What, what on earth are you even thinking? But then you have, I think this is the first time of many times that Rock Hudson will be mentioned in a Marvel comic. Uh, it ends with Johnny going, you know something, Benjamin? You're no Rock Hudson, but I'm sure glad you're with us instead of a Guinness. Man, you sure put up some fight. And Ben says, you're not bad yourself, pest for a little fella. But who wants to be Rock Hudson? I'm the guy Alicia digs. So that is, uh, uh, generally speaking, Stanley will prove to be fairly obsessed with Rock Hudson. But so that well, is and, this and issue. And when, when it comes to the thing, I think that that, you know, is actually kind of a nice uh, counterpoint to him because he is literally a rock or rocky and yet Rock Hudson was known as one of the most handsome leading men in Hollywood at the time. And obviously the thing is uh, considered ugly by most of the world. So uh, I think it was I think it's one of the reasons why we keep on hearing Rock Hudson references is because it's a nice counterpoint to his plight. OK, sure. I'll grant you that. <laughs> but anyway, um, a hideous issue, uh, dumb story, bad art. Not a good, not a good human torch story in any way, shape, or form. The only thing it is notable for is that it prefigures Johnny. The fact that Johnny does eventually make a move on Alicia, it will eventually turn out that the Alicia he made a move on was secretly a scroll in disguise. But he didn't know that. He thought he was genuinely making a move on Alicia at the time. Uh, and so, a couple of things about this. One, uh, the puppet master is right up there with the Watcher in never really having a a solid model for people to use like you know he is almost no. never on model um and it, there are times when it gets much worse than this in terms of being off model but still this is not great another thing is remember a couple of uh, episodes ago when i said that all the instances of that woman's face had been redrawn by somebody not ditko um looking at alicia's face in this issue i'm wondering if it may have been george russo's who redid her face in those issues that is entirely possible yeah, because uh, the, the, her, her face here looks very much like those faces that were drawn on to the um, to the Ditko uh, panels. Uh, so anyway, just a couple of thoughts about that. But um, really, that's about all I have to add to this. It's, uh, you know, let's move on to better things. <laughs> let's move on to better things, a much better thing, an absolutely gorgeous second half of the book. Doctor Strange, Master of Flash Magic, Return to the Nightmare World. So we have had little glimpses of Ditko's amazing facility for other dimensional worlds. But who boy, this is the issue where it all really pays off. This is an absolutely gorgeous, all extra dimensional issue of Dr. Strange um, starting on the splash page. Then, Oh my God, this, the next page, page two of the Dr. Strange story um, showing nightmare. So this is the return of the character. We saw in the very first Dr. Strange story nightmare, the Lord of the nightmare realm, um, we Dicko just going absolutely 
bug nuts insane trying his world, <laughs> trying his dimension. He then decides to get his revenge on Doctor Strange by causing various people on Earth to have sleep sickness and be unable to awaken. Uh, the police come to Doctor Strange. They say, this is the sort of thing you're good at. Could you examine one of these patients? Doctor Strange examines him. He checks an old book. He realizes that what is going on with it must be Nightmare's fault. He then goes into Nightmare's world. Uh, let, see... let, let, me point, let me point out that as he's looking at that book, he says, in the name of the dread Dormammu, in the name of the all-seeing Agamotto, by the powers that dwell in the darkness. So he is still calling upon the power of Dormammu now, uh, as well as um, in a previous issue. So they have not yet gotten to the point where he's like, yeah, I shouldn't do that. He's not somebody I want to <laughs> owe anything to. Um, and also, I will point out that the whole thing about the sleep sickness as a pervasive thing uh, reminds me a little bit of the uh, the first issues of uh, DC Comics Sandman, uh, the Neil oh, yeah. Gaiman uh, masterpiece, where that almost seems like maybe that was uh, maybe this was part of his um, his thoughts about that. I don't know. Oh, no, I totally assume that first issue of Neil Gaiman Sandman was drawn from this issue. But okay. uh, so then so then, you know, right away. When I grew up, before I read these comics, I read first exchange that I was a kid were the Marshall Rogers issues, the issues written by Roger Stern and penciled by Marshall Rogers. And I now realize those were hugely influenced by Dicko's issues, of course, but by this issue in particular, uh, especially the road in the other dimension that goes through the gaping jaws of a serpent on the bottom of page four. And also, I read all of Jim Starlin's comics, which I realized were hugely influenced by this issue in particular. Doctor Strange is in this other dimension encountering all sorts of crazy visuals. He eventually finds the people who Nightmare has taken. He um, can't go off the path to get to them, so he has to extend his, his, extend his sash and go get them. But then he foolishly steps on the island that he has rescued them from. Nightmare now has him. He is going to have Strange be attacked by his spiny beast, and be killed. Now, the one thing I do not like about this issue is that the way Strange gets out of this is not at all clever. Strange is just doing something we've seen him do before. He opens up his amulet and shines it really bright in Nightmare's eyes. And Nightmare's like, oh, bright light, don't know what to do. And accidentally kills his own spiny beast. And then Doctor Strange is able to get away and get home. So not a clever solution to this issue by any way, shape, or means. But an absolutely gorgeous issue that would have huge impact on Marvel's greatest artists going forward and certainly over Doctor Strange. This issue would sort of set the template for Doctor Strange more so than any of the previous issues have done in terms of Doctor Strange being the issue where Dicto goes to go crazy with his wild other dimensional worlds and hugely influenced on the Doctor Strange movie as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although I, I really think that as much as, you know, I was generally happy with how the Doctor Strange movie came out, you know, I did have some quibbles, among other things, the fact that he stayed an arrogant bastard after becoming a magician. But then um, the but the other thing was that I felt that the otherworldly stuff they had just wasn't quite Ditko enough. Um, yeah, I you agree. Know, they, they, they 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 really leaned more on that whole like what is it the was the mirror dimension or something like that that they called it and that that really looked like it's like oh well we figured out how to do this effect for Inception so let's just go ahead and do that <laughs> as opposed to uh, this you know the the paths through infinity going by weird mind melting 
oddities in various ways. Uh, so I felt well, that was one place for that really. Mm-hmm. I'm currently listening yeah. to the commentary on Ant-Man of the Wasp, and they talk about being influenced by Dicko in there when they go to the quantum realm. And in some ways, the quantum realm in the Ant-Man movies is more Dicko-inspired than the dark dimension in the Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, sure. I, 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 I'll buy that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The, the influence this has on sort of setting the world that Doctor Strange will be inhabiting from now on. Uh, as well as then just that influence on, as you say, Jim Starlin and so many other people uh, that are to follow, uh, including all the artists who later work on Doctor Strange. Uh, But then not only just that, you know, just about anyone who's dealing with the sort of like psychedelic cosmic stuff in Marvel uh, tends to really draw from this as well. Yeah, a lot of hippies in the late 60s would have Doctor Strange posters on their on their dorm room walls and I think this is the issue this is the issue that turned the hippies on this is the issue that uh, turned on the psychedelic <laughs> crowd um, and really you know made made Doctor Strange a psychedelic icon yeah and even though Ditko himself from what I understand is you know was very much a self described well i don't know if you'd use the actual term square but you know very much was not part of the whole psychedelic 60s you know this was a story he was telling and i my understanding is he was actually kind of horrified when he realized that this was becoming a cult favorite of the hippie crowd and particularly the drug doing hippie crowd um and it reminds me a little bit of uh i think it was dave gilmore from uh pink floyd saying at one point that you know everyone associates them with you know psychedelic drugs and he's like well yeah i mean that's i'm sure what it's like to listen to it but i mean we're actually performing the music we're not doing a bunch doing a bunch of these drugs here and i get that same sort of feeling here with uh steve ditko and his audience that they were just a real disconnect between where he was coming from and where they were receiving it yes okay let's go ahead and wrap up there we're once again going to have to split this month of comics into two episodes as we are doing just about every other episode now because marvel is putting out a lot of more books every other month at this point so let's go ahead and wrap up the first half of january 1964 there and we will see you guys next week all right thank you very much everybody uh stay safe out there and we will see you next week see you soon Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.